On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brendan Case about the nature of angels, particularly in the medieval period. So we cover topics like just what are the standard views of angels during this period? Is there one view that's more dominant than others? Who are the key proponents of what is called universal hylomorphism? And what are the benefits of affirming such a view? What are the potential costs? And what is really the relevance of thinking about the metaphysical status of angels for the regular everyday churchman? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we're bringing back our friend, Dr. Brendan Case, to talk about angels and particularly universal hylomorphism. I think when it comes to this topic about just the the constitution of angels, I would imagine most people have a vague sense of uh, what Brendan calls, I guess, spiritual immaterialism, which I guess at bottom is a Thomistic account of angels to some degree where uh, they don't have any matter whatsoever. And I don't know how many people, I think there's lots of people, when you actually start thinking about angels and you start asking questions, people probably realize, wow, I have no idea what to think about that. But there is, to some degree, I think a default to not universal hylomorphism. So we're going to talk about what is universal hylomorphism and all these different metaphysical options on angels. I think it's going to be really fun. But before we do that, uh, Brendan, for those who haven't listened to your previous episode uh, on your book, The Accountable Animal, give us a little bit of an introduction or background on you. And then what is it that made you start thinking about the topic of the metaphysics of angels? Wonderful to be with you guys again. Thanks, Jordan and Brandon. Uh, uh, as you said, I'm Brendan Case. I'm the associate director for research of a little outfit called the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. And uh, our program aims to study and promote human flourishing and to develop systematic approaches to the synthesis of knowledge across disciplines, and in particular across the social sciences and the humanities. Let's help think about uh, what is it that makes human beings flourish and how can we promote that, you know, in, in, in more effective ways. Um, obviously none of that has much to do with, with the angels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think, think back exactly to how, uh, you know, my life has changed so much in the last two years. It's very interesting. I mean, this, this is, it's kind of a, the, 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 the angel stuff is a, is a kind of barometer, I suppose, for that. But, um, so I, 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 did my doctorate in theology at Duke Divinity School. Um, was there for a long time, both as a master's and 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 uh, doctoral student. And uh, I wrote my my dissertation. I ended up writing it on um, the doctrine of creation in the thought of uh, a medieval theologian named Bonaventure, Saint Bonaventure of Bonaventure Reggio, and uh, an Enlightenment philosopher named George Berkeley. Um, and they have some really interesting sort of convergences and, and, and uh, despite very different idioms and, and milieus and kind of thought worlds, some really, some really striking similarities in the way they think about what it means to say that God creates the world. And, and uh, they both think of creation as a kind of language, essentially, that God speaks. Um, and so, so that's, sort of, that's sort of the theme of the, the, main, the main idea of the book, really, is, is, um, is of the dissertation, I should say, which has not been, not been uh, published anywhere except in bits, you know, in, in, in articles. Um, 
is that uh, is, is creation as a as as divine language, and one key idea for Bonaventure uh, and his his understanding of creation as 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 a kind of divine language is that um uh the the medium in which the words that creatures are um are uttered for Bonaventure is is what he calls matter um um and uh and so it's sort of it's basic for Bonaventure um to being a, a creature to being not god um that you that you have this sort of metaphysical part that he calls matter. And so it's, a, so, so I, I became interested in it because one uh, in the idea of the angels in particular, because it's, it's very important for Bonaventure that angels be hylomorphic angels be material. Um, it's constitutive of their create sort of baked into their creaturehood uh, that they, and so I had a, I ended up having a chapter on, on, on the angels as a kind of, as a kind of limit case, you know, effectively for, um, for thinking about, uh, for thinking about creaturehood, you know, and, and so, you know, I mean, it might, but it might be useful. I mean, maybe this is your next, this might be your next question. I suppose, but I do think it's very important as you start, as we sort of get into this discussion, just to get, to get clear on some of the terms, you know, so you've mentioned hylomorphism, right. Which is not, you know, really English, right. I mean, so, um, and we, in ordinary language, you know, we tend to use the word matter as a kind of placeholder for just stuff, you know, particularly stuff that takes up space effectively, you know, anything that's anything that, physics talks about, you know, is, is material. Um, uh, and, uh, and this has become complicated in interesting ways, even within physics though, frankly, I mean, now, you know, there are a number of, um, there are a number of elementary particles, uh, physics, physicists have identified, which are massless, um, electrons are an example, you know? Um, so what does that mean exactly to say, are they, are they material or are they not? Or, you know, <laughs> I mean, so, uh, so, so the term, is sort of in, in ordinary usage, I think is very fuzzy. Uh, and you need to kind of bracket that usage. It's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about stuff. We're not talking about things that the, the, the usage that becomes standard uh, following Aquinas uh, does connect matter with being body, with being in body. But even there, it's, it's kind of complicated in ways that I, I might, I, I might get into a bit later. Um, but so, so the, the term hylomorphism uh, is, is a, neologism i don't know when it was coined but probably 19th century would be my guess uh to describe this theory developed really developed first by plato in the timaeus but sort of formalized in a, in a, in a more uh, robust way by by aristotle in in his books uh the physics and and then the metaphysics for a way it's a it's a theory about uh change um change over time continuity and change right so uh there are two terms in the theory uh form and matter uh Hyle and Morphe in Greek. Um, and the idea is that anything that changes is a composite of these two, of these, uh, of these two parts, right? So, uh, there is a, um, and, and you might think of it just in the, in the general way, it's sort of useful, I, th I guess, to, to think of it as the difference in ordinary language between, between asking what and asking and between what and that, you know, so, um, or which, what and which, you know, so, so, uh, you have um if you have two dogs and this is actually so i mean it, it, there it, it, i'll say the theory does more work than just explaining continuity and change as well as we'll see now it also has to do with with the 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 uh with with um with what it is that makes uh tokens of a given type uh tokens of that type you know so so it's a it has has sort of high, higher higher order uh uh work to do as well 
But so if you have two dogs, say, just to take a simple example, two trees, you know, you can ask, what is it about them that makes them both trees? And that question is, that question is asking about, about form. It's asking about the sort of intelligible structure that's embedded in those objects that makes them tree-ish, you know, um, or, or dogish. Um, but there's also something about them, obviously, that makes them, that makes one that dog and the other this dog, you know, um, and, and that question is a question about matter. There's, there's distinct, there's, there's some distinct stuff that the, whatever that intelligible structure that makes a dog, a dog, or a tree, a tree is embedded in, it comes to, it organizes some stuff, you know, carbon atoms, you might say, or whatever, they get organized in a tree, in a tree-like way, and that makes them a tree. Um, and the reason it's important for thinking about change, though, is that um, a uh, a so 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 particular substances are always coming and going in the world, right? Uh, the world is a sort of if you just look look around, you know, everything below everything below the moon. Certainly, this is sort of the standard ancient view is just a constant in constant flux, you know. Um, and so the uh, the same group of atoms say, which, you know, a hundred years ago was a tree. They're now all scattered. They've gone somewhere else. You know, some of them are me, some of them are you, you know, some of them are, are in the ground. Uh, and there are new things now in their place. There's grass, maybe as we just indicated, there are, there are persons, you know? Uh, and so, you know, you have, you, you ask the question, what is it that, uh, what is it that, that underlies what's, is there, is there anything that provides stability and continuity for the world amid this flux. Cause what comes and goes are forms, you know, tree form was here. It goes away when the tree is destroyed, when a person dies, the, the form, both of humanity and, and the specific form that made me, me, you know, say when I die leaves the world, it's not there anymore, you know? Um, and so what under, what, what, what does the form come to? And what, and what does it leave? And the answer in this theory, the theory of hylomorphism is matter. Um, so form and matter is what explains how things, anything that can change on Aristotle's view has, has matter. Um, and so he says, Aristotle makes it quite clear in the metaphysics that, uh, the, the, uh, intelligible movers, the basically gods is his version of the Greek pantheon, which move the, the various planetary bodies in their courses all the way up to God with a capital G, the prime mover, you know, um, the unmoved mover. Uh, none of them have any matter because they don't change. Um, they're just, they just are eternally, you know? Um, and so, so, you know, the, the, um, so that, so that's, that's the, that's the, the framework, you know, within which we're thinking about, about hylomorphism. It's not a, you know, it's not a question about like stuff are angels, you know, could you put them in a box or whatever? I mean, it's a, it's a question about what are the conditions under which it's possible for change. Um, yeah. So, so maybe set, let's set the table in your paper. You, you have um, Aquinas in one corner and Bonaventure in the other corner. And Aquinas relies on this, what you refer to as the um, Boethian distinction. 
to account for change in angels. And then Bonaventure comes along and and he says basically, yeah, yeah, I think no, he agrees great. with that um, distinction, but he right, says it's, so, it's not enough. So walk us through yeah, these so two just, different uh, views and saying, um, describing and so after you sketch out Aquinas' view, tell us how Bonaventure called, responds right? to that. And so essentially what happens in the 13th century is the works of Aristotle, all of these scientific works of Aristotle are reintroduced to Europe after, after being absent for centuries, you know? Uh, and Christians had obviously been thinking about the angels for a long time, but there'd never been, you know, really a, a very robust discussion of this, this particular question, you know, what is the, what is the metaphysical constitution of, of the, of, of an angel? Um, but it was provoked. It, it was made kind of acute by these Aristotelian texts, which describe, you know, beings which sound a lot like angels, you know, frankly, I mean, the intelligences, you know, are, are Christians often, often Christian theologians often refer to them as, as angels. Um, and, uh, so what to say about them, you know, um, if they're, if they're, if, if, you know, if Aristotle's a great authority on, for these guys on matters of natural philosophy, you know, if Aristotle thinks that they're, they're immaterial, maybe we should just say, and they're, and, 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 you know, so Aquinas, Aquinas has this this view, which is um, plausible. There's there's an, there's an intuition here that um, anything that's material can't think. Okay, this is the basic concern, right? This is this is his his I call it his panzer. You know, this is sort of the knockdown argument he thinks just makes it impossible to say that that uh, that angels could be immaterial because everyone agrees that angels are, are intellectual beings. Um, of a more and whatever that means exactly they're more intellectual than we are you know we we uh because for one thing broad agreement in the thir- by the 13th century that they don't have bodies like we do so they don't have eyes we get all of our we don't we can't know anything you know without some inputs we need inputs from the world you know um, and angels don't seem if they don't have bodies they don't rely on them and quite that on, on inputs in quite the same way so they're 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 intellectual on an even higher level than we are you know and the problem with matter in aquinas's view is that matter, when it receives a form, it restricts it. This is the thought. So when, when, the, when the, the form of, let's just stay with our example, dog nature comes to, a, 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 uh, comes to matter, what that matter does is it restricts it to being a particular dog. This dog here now, you know, not, not, uh, and so, and so too for human nature, right? You can't shake hands with humanity. You can only shake hands with Socrates or with Brendan or with, right? And so, uh, and that's because matter restricts. Then if there's matter in our intellects, then uh, anytime we attempted to know something, all we would be able to know were particulars because it would reparticularize. The, that's the thought. That's the basic, the basic intuition is that, is that uh, uh, the intellect has to be free from matter. And then there's, there are, there's, there's discussion in Aristotle's book on the soul, which, which is sort of along these lines, you know? Uh, and so, but there's a problem here um, still, as you, as you've indicated, uh, because uh, if angels aren't composite in any way, if they're not put together out of parts, um, then they'd just be God. Um, they'd be simple, meta- truly, truly uh, metaphysically simple, um, and there's, there's a, a lovely, uh, uh, set of proofs essentially in the early questions of Aquinas' Summa, uh, Theologiae, his, his big masterwork, you know, which show essentially that, uh, that, uh, true simplicity, meaning having no parts at all is a, is a, is a property of God and God alone. Um, and so, and, and anything, anything that's not God has to be composite, has to be put together, um, 
in some way out of out of what what he what Aristotle calls potency and act, which which is um you know again another another kind of intuitive distinction, which I suppose we maybe don't need to spend all that much time unpacking, but um I mean potency and act just to put it very simple is is uh um I'm sitting right now. I'm in potency to standing, right? I could, I could stand, you know, I'm not currently standing, but, and so anyway, I mean, that this is, this is in the background. Everybody takes this for granted. Angels have to be put together somehow. They have to be composed. So what are they composed of if not form and matter? Well, another possibility sort of lurking in the, the, the philosophical and theological tradition comes from Boethius, who's this late ancient commentator on and, and, and translator of Aristotle. He translated a lot of Aristotle's logical works. And he makes a distinction um, between uh, what he, he what he calls uh, um, th- uh, what a thing is and that by which it is. Quote est in, in Latin, quote est and uh, quo est, right? And uh, this is a distinction which gets a lot of mileage in medieval discussions. Everybody has their own definition, essentially, of the of the two terms. Everyone understands it in slightly different ways. Broadly speaking, they tend to map on to uh, the difference between um, essence and existence. Just for our purposes, I think this is the simplest way of thinking about it. So um, the there's a great discussion of this, classic discussion of this in, in Aquinas' early, early work. Um, and where he, 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 he says, think about a Phoenix. Okay. So you can get a, we can all, we're all I'm right now, probably imagining a Phoenix, right? Uh, so we know, we know broadly speaking what a Phoenix is, you know, it's a bird, which every so often bursts into flames and then is reborn from its own ashes, you know? Um, and you can know, or, or Pegasus said, you know, Pegasus flying horse, you can, you can know in some suitably indeterminate sense, what a thing is, without knowing whether it is, right? So it's logically possible that they're, let's just say that there are phoenixes. It's logically possible that they're flying horses, you know. Um, as a matter of fact, contingently, there happen not to be, you know. Um, and that's the difference between essence and existence. Knowing what a thing is doesn't tell you whether it is. And so the two are put together in a sense. And creation, one, one way of thinking about what the act of creation is, it's God's, is God's putting essences together with existence. You know, God actualizes some set of essences. Um, typically the thought is some subset of possible essence, of possible existence, you know, so he doesn't make Pegasus, even though he could have, you know, he doesn't make Mr. Tumnus, even though he could have. Right. I mean, so those are, you know, the, the, um, so one way of thinking about literature is that it's, it gives you a window onto possible worlds, you know, um, right. These are world worlds that could have, that could exist, but don't in fact, you know, um, and uh, so Aquinas thinks that the fact that angels also are put together out of essence and existence is sufficient. It, 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 gives, you, it gives you enough leverage uh, to explain everything that needs explaining, essentially. So, so uh, angels are, they're contingent in just the way that you or I are, right? Because they're, every angel is a distinct essence, which is, has to be has to be paired with an act, an act of being, uh, in order to exist. And, uh, that makes them, that makes them finite. Um, uh, and he, 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 but he, he wants to make a further claim. And this is where, this is where I want to get off the train. Uh, I'm with him so far, actually. I mean, I think Bonaventure is with him so far too. Um, but he makes a further claim, which is that that distinction also suffices 
to explain how angels can change once they exist, right? Um, and the explanations that he and and his fellow travelers, so Albert, his teacher Albert the Great, also has a ver, you know a version of these these same set of arguments against universal hylomorphism along the same lines. Although he has a slightly different understanding of 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 the the quote s quote s distinction. Um, you know, they 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 tend to appeal to sort of deeply implausible analogies. I think so. Like Aquinas says at one point, well, you know, j- just in the way that uh, you know a a translucent medium like air sort of both receives and transmits color. You know, you can maybe imagine that if there were like a self-subsistent, you know, uh, sh- it, like a, I think he actually says a a a, a a a subsisting a quality of of translucence you know diaphanitas is what he says in latin uh that you know it it would sort of be like an angel you know and would be capable of of like act acting and 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 uh and receiving actions even though it's purely simple um and the simplest response to this is that is that uh the analogy is nonsense you know i mean it, it it the analogy only works because translucent media are, are actually material, you know, <laughs> and it, it, it beg it, it, it begs all the important questions. And they, they tend, all, all of the analogies tend to be like this, frankly. Um, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a basic failure within the, the Thomist position, um, to reckon with the fact that the, the Boethian distinction, as I call it, just does not explain how anything can change. It explains how angels could exist. An angel, a, a, a spiritually immaterial or Thomistic angel would just exist and would be frozen. Just like Aristotle thought the intelligences were, you know, there would just be a subsistent act of thinking. Um, but angels are clearly not like that. You know, um, they have to change at least once. Everybody agrees, you know, some angels fell, right? I mean, so if you can't, uh, um, and it seems as though, you know, it certainly seems as though the, the event say of Gabriel speaking to, Zechariah is a different event for Gabriel than the event of his speaking to Mary, you know, in the gospel of Luke say, you know, so, so again, you need some account of how it is that, that angels undergo changes of intellect and will. Um, the ordinary framework for explaining those kinds of changes, if you're working within the kind of, uh, uh, tradition of classical metaphysics, let's just call it, you know, that sort of runs from Plato through Aristotle. And that's sort of the common coin of, of thinkers in this period. Um, and I don't assume by the way, that you have to do that. You know, I mean, you can do Calvin and Bart go their own way, you know, in this. So this is Bonaventure's basic point. He says this over and over again, and you can tell he's very exasperated, frankly, uh, in, in, in various texts where he, he sort of keeps coming back to this and says, you know, look, we're not saying there's actually a text where he says it's in, um, it's in um, his census commentary. It's where it's actually, he's talking about the human soul at this point, the soul of Adam and whether Adam's, whether our, whether our souls are composed of form and matter, he thinks they are too. Um, but he says, he says in that text that, you know, we're not saying that the, the composition out of quotest and quoest uh, isn't, isn't real. We're just saying it doesn't suffice for explaining how we undergo changes of, of intellect and will. Um, and so that's the basic, I mean, I think the, I think that the universal hylomorphist position is defensible. I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it, it, it ought to be, you know, a, a serious contender in any discussions about the, 
the nature of angels. But what I really want to emphasize, I mean, the real point of this paper in a way is just that people should just give up on the, the Thomistic approach because it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It fails on its own terms. You know, it doesn't, it's not a candidate, you know, uh, for, for the best angelology because it's not a consistent angelology. It doesn't, it doesn't explain, uh, really even the most minimal sort of, uh, uh, points of data about, about the angels, like how they could fall, you know, um, you need you need some forms don't and the, the the basic way of putting this and there's a kind of another another slogan which which gets quoted a lot by by people like Bonaventure is that uh forms are not subjects um so forms are predicated of things right so a form just like a, a, a just to take a, a simple example of quality like the color of my hair at the moment is brown right um brown is a quality in the Aristotelian terms it's an accident of my hair it's a it's a form an accidental form, which contingently, you know, is a, is a property of, of, of my hair. Um, in, in a decade or whatever, 15 years, my hair will be gray. You know, um, what changes is the form, but you don't predicate properties of, of forms. You wouldn't say, you wouldn't say that, you know, uh, that, uh, my brownness is hair, right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, uh, so if angels are forms, they can't receive, they can't take predicates. If angels are universals, you know, um, just, this is just, it's, it's, it's a confusion. It's a, it's a sort of fundamental confusion, uh, within the, within the framework of the, of the Aristotelian metaphysical tradition to think that angels could be subsisting forms and also be the subject of chain forms come and go, but forms themselves are not, you need, you need, you need form to come together with matter to form a substance in order to have a subject of change, you know? So that's the basic, that's the basic thought. Yeah. I, I, I think of Thomas and his, and I guess his approach and it, you're mentioning how it's confusing. Well, yeah, it's, it's confusing to me too. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> what? Bottom is confusing as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's very, you know, we're not, we're ill-equipped to think about these things, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess maybe I'm wondering, it's not necessarily that angels have to be met, made up of form and then actual, like actual physical stuff that I can touch that I can see. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But they do have to have matter in this other type of sense. So, what sense this is, I'm not totally sure. Maybe this is where you get the, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin question from. Totally. Yeah, no, it's right. It's great. It's great. It's, and, you know, the funny thing is that, that, so that, that actual question is, I mean, I think it's a night, it's another like 19th century, you know, coinage or whatever. Uh, some, I can't remember who it was, who's, who's mocking, you know, the discipline of angelology, but it actually emerges from a very, from a very serious question, uh, which is an interesting question that, that, which is sort of to one slightly to one side of, of the, of this issue, but which is about angelic modes of presence, you know, and, and, uh, are, are, are angels, are angels present distensively? This is, there's a distinction between distensive and definitive presence, uh, and, uh, or presence by intention. And, uh, everybody in this period basically agrees that angels are not present distensively as you've, you, Jordan, as you, as you just indicated, they're not, they don't take up space, you know? Um, so, uh, they have to be present some other way. And it means essentially that as many angels as want could be how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. Well, as many as wanted to, because they don't take up space, you know? Um, so no matter what position you take, whether it's Bonaventure or whether it's Thomas, y- you can answer that question the same way. 
it seems. Yeah, the question about local presence, like, right. Yeah, sure, certainly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they both agree, and this is an interesting point, which we haven't discussed yet, I guess, but um, they both agree that angels don't have bodies of any kind. Um, and it's worth noting that there is another, there's another stream of Christian thinking about this, which, which doesn't accept that, you know, which, which attributes, you find this even in Augustine, Augustine entertains the idea that angels have ethereal bodies is what he's, what is, you know, what he calls them, um, spiritual bodies effectively, sort of like, you know, um, on analogy with, with resurrection bodies, I guess. Um, and, uh, this position, bon, I mean, they all consider it. Bonaventure has a, has a discussion of it in his sentences commentary and says, you know, uh, he recognizes, uh, the fathers, you know, entertain this position, but it's now become clear. He says essentially to the mind of the church that this is not not tenable. Um, and you know, this is a, you know, again, like 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 I said before, it's a somewhat secondary issue to me. You know, whether spiritual bodies are are a viable candidate, you know, for angelology alongside, say, universal hylomorphism, principally because I mean, my my real interest, you know, like I said before, is is a uh, is just getting people to stop trying to make the Thomistic approach work you know so if we could just regroup you know we could we could we could discuss the spiritual bodies question that that raises in a way that simplifies things you know in 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 some ways because you can say well you know we don't really know what they are but at least they're sort of like our bodies you know i mean they're uh thinner maybe or 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 whatever or or maybe we're thinner and they're you know they're the real stuff and and uh the, 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 interestingly, the basic logic for for Bonaventure and Aquinas for rejecting that view, the spiritual bodies view, um, it's a kind of it's 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 a modal argument uh, that they offer. I mean, which which by, by which I mean it's it's an argument from thinking about about possibility and necessity, basically, and, and and what's fitting. So they say, okay, so just consider the kinds of things that we know exist. Um, all all of them, anything you can sort of tabulate in terms of existence that we're aware of there could be a creature which was incorporeal. Um, and if there were, that creature would be as much like God as it's possible to be, at least with respect to that, that kind of existence among creatures, because God is not in his, in his proper nature is, is, is incorporeal. Um, and so if it's possible that there'd be such a creature, it would be fitting for God to make one. And we have a candidate, what seems like a pretty good candidate, in the angels, right? We don't know. Do they have bodies or not? You know, um, so so let's say they don't have bodies, effectively. And 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 you know, there are there are other there are suggestive indications, I guess I would say, in, in scripture, which seem to indicate, you know, um, in Luke twenty four, when Jesus appears to the disciples, you know, after the resurrection, and they're terrified, uh, they thought they had seen a spirit. You know, it's often translated ghost, but it's just pneuma you know, in, in, in Greek. And Jesus says, uh, see my hands, you know, give me, give me a, give me a piece of fish to eat. You know, don't you know that a spirit does not have flesh and bones? Um, so that doesn't, I don't think that definitively rules out spiritual bodies, but it's suggestive, you know, and it's suggestive to someone like Aquinas or Bonaventure that, that what we should be looking for is, is a mode of existence that is properly, bodiless, incorporeal, you know? Um, and so then the question is, how do you understand that? Um, do you understand that it as a kind of layered composition of, of being and existence and then form and matter, or do you try, or do you have this sort of more parsimonious approach that Aquinas ad- adopts where you try to understand it just in terms of, of being and existence? Um, and, uh, yeah, it just seems, it's just too parsimonious. It just doesn't have enough explanatory power, you know? 
on the on the Thomistic conception, if you do just there's a distinction between essence and existence, you get all these weird conclusions that what every single angel is its own species. Yeah, it has to be right because uh, the way that you know, as we said before, uh, when we were talking about say dogs or whatever, you know, the way that uh, tokens of a given type are differentiated for Aquinas and for Bonaventure is by matter, you know. Um, and so like the difference between, between one dog and another is not, is not dog nature, you know, cause that's by definition what they share. <laughs> it has to be something else matters. What supplies the difference. And so, yeah, if angels are only, if they're subsisting form, then there's no way to individuate angels within a given, um, nature. So yeah, it's the interesting thing is Aquinas is actually, this is a rare, it's a rare instance of, um, of, of nominalism on his part. Uh, he's a nominalist about angels. There, there is no such thing as an angel, actually. An angel is a kind of heuristic category that we, we conceive for grouping together these, these radically distinct, generically distinct beings. Um, but there is no such thing as, as an angel nature that they all share. Um, which Bonaventure does raise among many objections as a, as an obvious objection to this way of thinking that, you know, among, I mean, of the very, the very limited data we have to go on, you know, uh, from, from scripture and, and, and just unaided reflection about what angels are. One of the kind of central points is that they're angels, <laughs> you know, I mean, this seems to be, there seems to be some, some reason for grouping them together in this, in this, under this one genre, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, it is a, I don't think this is necessarily, it's not a defeater necessarily for this, for his view, but it is an odd consequence. Yeah. Which you can tell he, he's uncomfortable with too, frankly. I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing to have to say, but it's, but it's, it's a clear entailment though. Yeah. Of the, of the view. I'm wondering when it comes to this topic of thinking about angels, does it really have a, I mean, what's the relevance for just the average Christian to think about angels and to wonder how that they are properly constituted. Is this more of an academic and a more of a broad, just sweeping, having the right categories about things, or does this have direct relevance on just how I read the Bible or those types of things? Well, I, w- I guess I would say, I, mean, I do, I do think that the, um, something that, that uh, thought about the angels in general, and this is not specific to universal hylomorphism, but you know, one of the things that re- reflection on the angels illustrates is the, the beauty of theology's uselessness, you know, and I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for useless things. I mean, I think we need to be, and, and, and it's, um, you know, we live in a kind of a, a technocratic age, I guess you'd say, you know, a utilitarian age. It is, it's too often unremarked how important it is uh, that people have useless things in their lives. Um, I mean, to take a simpler example, lower to the ground, I suppose, you know, the um, uh, families, marriage is a very useful thing, but it's most useful when people think of it as useless. It's most useful when, like, it's a very useful thing in terms of providing a kind of social safety net, you know, to have a spouse and to have someone who's there for you. And, you know, people live longer if they're married, but people get the most benefits from being married are people who just love their spouses, you know, um, who aren't in it to get something out, you know, um, who just think that they're, and so that that's, you know, it's, it's most useful when it's use when you, when it's viewed as useless. Um, and lots of things in life are like that. I think friendships like that too, you know, um, and, you know, what theology uh represents in its sort of purest form is um it's the best the best kind of life um 
you know, Aquinas has this wonderful comment early in one of the early chapters of the Summa Contra Gentiles um, that um, he's talking about theology as a discipline, what, what theology is. And he says, um, he says, to be able to look into the very highest things with however weak and paltry a gaze uh, is most delightful. Um, Eucondissimum est is what he says in Latin. Uh, and, you know, I think that, that that's something that, you know, I, I I take very seriously as a theologian. You know, that uh, theology I do want, you know, of, of course, I hope that, you know, the work I do will be useful in some way, you know, in, in, in edifying other other believers or, or um, you know, helping or, or, or potentially converting, you know, the unbelievers or whatever. I mean, who knows what, what'll happen with, with a book you put out there in the world. But, but ultimately, you know, I mean, I do think that, that the reason I, I'm so passionate about theology is that, uh, is that uh, the, the most important and most beautiful object of for thought is, is the Lord, you know, and the Lord's creatures and, and angelology brings that to the surface in a really, in a really striking way. Cause it's just not about us, you know, <laughs> there's nothing in it for us really in, in the angels. And it's, yeah. Anyway, I think that this is a, it's, it's a, uh, we don't, we don't consider enough. I think the, the, the importance of having, as I said, useless things in our lives, you know, things which serve, which serve no, no other end, you know? And so I think, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, if you realize, once you realize that actually the best thing in life, really, at least for people who are equipped for it, you know, and this is not everybody, um, is contemplating the Lord and his creatures, you know, um, it sort of relativizes all of the other concerns here, but maybe there is, maybe there's some, maybe there is some like deeper usefulness to, to angelology that I'll, I'll uncover later, but but I think even if it's useless, that's still pretty, it's still actually pretty important precisely, precisely for its, its uselessness, you know? Um, so. Okay. So I want to remind our listeners again, no, number one, Brendan, you're on Twitter. So you mentioned it. You can go find him there. Uh, second, follow the work over at the Harvard Center for Human Flourishing. So go check out that stuff there. I, you know, you Brendan shares stuff from it on Twitter and I go and look at it and I think it's super interesting, um, really encouraging work that's going on there. And third is we did an episode previously on the accountable animal with them. You can go check that out. You can go check out his book on it as well as do you have any pending resources that you have that you want to talk about and share and say, Hey, be, be on the lookout for this. Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I, well, I'm just about to start publishing something, I guess, roughly monthly with, uh, an online journal called the church life journal. Um, so I've written for them a number of times before, but that they'll, they'll, you know, you'll, you can look, I guess, for my, my columns or whatever. And the, the reason for the incarnation in the thought of another 13th, 13th century theologian named Robert Grossetist, um, Grossetist, I guess, I mean, however you say his name (laughs) and uh, don't say his name out loud as often as you'd think. Uh, uh, not that many, not that many Grossetist people running around, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, he's a he's an early defender and a really interesting defender of um, the position that that the incarnation was not contingent on sin; that the incarnation would have happened even without sin, uh, and develops a number of, of really important arguments for this view, which which have kind of gotten left out of the of the debate uh, for sort of uh, 
contingent reasons. Basically, SCOTUS took over the debate in a in a weird way, like after the you know from the 14th century on, and so uh, people sort of have just have just ignored Gross's contributions more or less. And uh, so yeah, so anyway, that's that'll be in the next book I think, um, which I hope will be done this year sometime. But I don't know exactly when that'll be um, from Le- from Lex Press. It's under contract with Lex Press. Um, so yeah. But otherwise, yeah, do stay tuned for that. But otherwise, I'm uh, I'm just writing occasional things, you know, in there. Yeah, well, that's great. So I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think this was fun, especially I, I liked your point about the uselessness of it. So I think that was actually really nice. Um, and it's, so everybody's been listening. We re- really thank you for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and professional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.